Welcome to The Rabbit Room. I'm Andrew Peterson. For more information about the songs, writers, and artists featured here, please visit rabbitroom.com. Rabbit Room theme song composed and performed by Ben Shive. For the next few episodes of the Rabbit Room podcast, we'll be hearing those Advent writings from Russ Ramsey, Rabbit Room contributor and pastor at Oak Hills Presbyterian Church in Overland Park, Kansas. Well, because Esau meant to kill Jacob, Jacob had to flee his father's house and go to live with his uncle Laban in Haran until Esau cooled off. While he was there, Jacob fell in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, and he wanted to marry that woman. And so he swore in exchange for her hand in marriage to work for Laban for seven years. For seven years, Laban said he would give his daughter's hand in marriage. Laban was happy to oblige with this, and when the wedding came, there was a problem. The woman under the veil was Laban's daughter, but was not Rachel. It was his other older daughter, Leah. And when Jacob found out, Laban's reply, and this is my paraphrase of Genesis 29, 26 to 27, was, oh, you meant Rachel. Well, you know, in our culture, we don't permit younger daughters to marry first. Didn't you, didn't you know that? I'll tell you what. For another seven years of servitude, Rachel's all yours. Now, Jacob had clearly been tricked into marrying Leah. And really, it was a great scheme. He was tricked into taking both of Laban's daughters off of his hands. But his love for Rachel prevailed. He'd do whatever it took to have her as his wife. And so Jacob worked for Laban for another seven years. But Laban wasn't the only schemer in this relationship. Jacob quietly worked to build his herds and his possessions until his personal wealth rivaled that of his uncle. Jacob even managed to trick Laban out of most of his entire livestock. Both of them lived to swindle each other. And within that system exists a sort of code which said, look, if one schemer is foolish enough to fall for another schemer's scheme, then shame on him. But still, they had to live at peace. And eventually, part of living at peace with Laban meant living apart from Laban. And so Jacob gathered his wives and his servants and his livestock and his possessions. And he set out for the only other home he knew, the land of his father in Canaan. Only now, it wasn't really the land of his father anymore. Now it was the land of his brother. And the last he heard, Esau had taken a very serious oath to kill Jacob the next time he saw him. So though Jacob hoped their paths would never cross again, he knew that they would, and they would soon. And though it had been years, 
years. Jacob had no reason to think that Esau had forgotten how Jacob had tricked him out of his own birthright, how Jacob had tricked his father out of his blessing. And so Jacob sent scouts ahead, hopefully to intercept Esau and lavish him with gifts and let him know, hey, Jacob is coming. Hopefully the scouts might be able to gauge Esau's reaction to this. But when the scouts returned, they had found Esau. But they weren't able to gauge his intentions. What they did know was that Esau was coming to meet Jacob, and he was bringing with him 400 men. Well, a prevailing dread came over Jacob, and he turned to the Lord in prayer. He prayed, I'm not worthy of all the faithfulness you've shown your servant. With only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me. As he prayed, Jacob also schemed. He developed a plan. He separated his camps into two separate places so that if Esau attacked one, the other would be able to escape. He sent his wives and his children to the far side of the river so regardless of which camp Esau attacked, Leah, Rachel, and the kids would be safe hidden in the canyons of the Jabbok River. Then he assembled three more parties of scouts, each with herds of livestock, to offer as gifts, and he dispatched them one after another after another like waves of blessing and prosperity, hoping that they would break over his brother, that they would smooth out whatever was rough. And then with everyone in place, Jacob waited by the banks of the Jabbok alone in the dark. He and this river were not that different all through his life, his schemes, like streams of thought, flowed and gathered from high and hidden places, coming together to run away with no other agenda than taking advantage of the easiest path through the weakest lines of what might have otherwise stood tall and dignified and whole. Further upstream, at the fords of the Jabbok, a man could see the river begin. But who could know the manner in which those waters would wind their way through the highlands of Gilead, cutting their course ever deeper and deeper until they emptied into the Jordan to be carried away to the desolate Dead Sea? Jacob never saw much beyond the fords of his own schemes, though they did merge like tributaries to cut a channel hard enough to pass along the consequences of his life to others. And further downstream... Many had been cut in two by Jacob. Many men, dreaming of high positions, had seen their footing swept out from under them by Jacob's actions. Sooner or later, there would come a reckoning. And Esau was coming. In the dark, Jacob wondered what his brother was hungry for. Whatever it was, he figured Esau would follow his appetites. When they were younger, Esau offered his birthright as Isaac's heir for a bowl of Jacob's stew. All their lives, their father and grandfather had taught them 
that in this family, the birthright was everything. God was working through this family, establishing the lineage that the great redeemer would come out of. The one to carry the birthright of this family was to stand in an unbreakable line that would one day give the world her savior. It was unfair the way Jacob deceived his father to get it. Esau forfeited that birthright to him years ago. To so brazenly trade it away to fill his belly was foolish. It was just foolish. And though no one could fault Esau for being angry when Isaac gave his blessing to Jacob, this was still a mess of Esau's own making. Regardless, though, Jacob wondered, will the dawn bring the fight of his life? And then as if from nowhere, someone grabbed him and threw him to the ground. Where this assailant had come from, he didn't know. Who he was, he didn't know. All he knew was that whoever this was, he was strong. And as it would be for anyone, adrenaline pounded through his veins. He did the only thing that he could. He fought back. Jacob wrestled with everything that he had, with every fiber of his muscle with every wit and it was exhausting but alone in the dark what was he to do surrender he fought and he prayed because surely the son of Isaac the son of Abraham the friend of God had the Lord on his side surely the almighty would give Jacob strength to prevail over whoever this was But whatever prayers he might have whispered for help that night were beautifully ironic because he didn't know that the very same God that he prayed to for help was now the one who had him tangled up in the dirt. But he stayed in the fight. He stayed in the fight. And as the first signs of morning began to glow in the east, the Lord knocked Jacob's hip, this core of a wrestler's strength, the pivot point. He knocked it out of its socket. When the angel of the Lord took that away, whatever leverage Jacob might have had was gone. And without leverage, Jacob went from wrestling to clinging, as though his life depended on it. He held on. And as he did, the angel of the Lord said, let me go. And Jacob strained, not until you bless me. Jacob did not want to leave this fight wondering when the next fight would come because he knew that he couldn't win. He knew he was at the mercy of God and so he cried out for blessing. Bless me. He cried out for what he had tried to steal from his brother and what he had tried to take from his father. He wanted the Lord's blessing. Give me the blessing. So the angel of the Lord asked him, what is your name? God never asks a question because he lacks information. He wanted Jacob to testify. He wanted him to testify against himself before the court of the Most High. He wanted Jacob to confess that he was the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, the heir of God's covenant promises, and he wanted Jacob to confess that he was a liar and a cheat. And Jacob confessed it all. I am Jacob. 
God promised Adam and Eve that life this side of redemption would be hard. And Jacob's whole life had been hard. It had been marked by struggles, struggles of his own making. He came out of the womb scheming, and he never looked back. He wrestled the birthright from his brother, the blessing from his father, two brides from his uncle, even enough livestock to make him a prince. And he knew he could wrestle pretty much anything he wanted away from pretty much anyone he chose because he was good at it. But none of it made him happy. None of it brought him peace. And now all that was left was to cling to God for blessing. And I wonder, perhaps a flicker of hope sparked in Jacob as he realized he couldn't wrestle anything away from God. Maybe he could finally know peace. Maybe he could yield. This was perhaps the only satisfying victory in his life up to this point. This realization that though his brother could trade it and his father could speak it, only God could actually do what he had promised to do. The angel of the Lord blessed Jacob by changing his name. From now on, your name shall no longer be Jacob the deceiver, but Israel, God fights because you've striven with God and with men and have prevailed It's another example of God naming someone according to what he would make of them, not according to what they were. As Jacob, he was the scheming son of Isaac, but as Israel, he'd become the namesake of a nation the Lord swore to make of his grandfather Abraham's seed. The nation through which all other nations of the earth would be blessed would take this name, his name, the name that the Lord God had given him. Israel. And then they would grow to be just like their namesake. Stiff-necked, proud, prone to schemes, eager to bargain. And they'd wrestle. Though they'd wrestle, and God would hobble them, stripping them of their leverage, it would be because God was fighting for them even when they forgot the covenant that God himself swore to uphold. Their forefather Israel walked before the Lord with a limp and they were made to understand that they did too. But God would rescue them. He would rescue them. And this was the promise. 